The following episode contains fighting, shootings, and bombings. It is not suitable for children. Outside the district court building in the nation's capital, Teamster boss James Hoffa surrenders to U.S. Marshals to begin serving an eight-year prison term for jury tampering. And another five years for fraud in handling of the Teamster's pension fund. With his raincoat covering handcuffs, Hoffa arrives at federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. He said his attorneys would continue his fight while he's in jail. Bobby Kennedy had pursued Hoffa for over a decade. He finally got him. March 7th, 1967, the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters checked into prison. When it was time for me to go, they shackled and chained me like a wild animal. 10 pounds of leg irons, belly band, handcuffs, and a chain running up from the leg irons to the handcuffs. There was a caravan to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary that looked like a scene from Bonnie and Clyde. I don't know where the hell they thought I was going to run to. From WDIV in Detroit and Graham Media, I'm Steve Garagiola. You're listening to Shattered Season 4, Hoffa. Episode 4, The Comeback. I hope you never have to go to prison. It's hell on earth. Only hell couldn't be this bad. These are Jimmy Hoffa's words from his autobiography. I was processed alone, booked, fingerprinted, stripped, run through a delousing shower, and shoved into isolation for 24 hours. Jimmy Hoffa began his prison term still holding the presidency of the Teamsters Union. He kept his job and his salary. I have to admit, without blowing my horn in any way, that I probably was something of a celebrity at Lewisburg. In some manner, truck drivers making deliveries to the prison, most of them Teamster members, found out where my cell was. Driving through the yard, they'd lean out their cabs and yell, Hiya, Jimmy, keep your chin up. Hey, Jimmy, baby, we're still with you. Don't let them get you down, Jimmy. If you need anything, Jimmy, just let us know. The warden at one point called me into his office and asked me if I wouldn't put a stop to such goings-on. Hoffa was determined to spend as little time as possible in prison while figuring out a way to get back to his union. But despite remaining president and still wielding some power, he was in prison cut off from a lot of his work. So in his absence, Hoffa appointed his longtime friend and colleague, Frank Fitzsimmons, to run the Teamsters Union. Did Hoffa and organized crime all like Frank Fitzsimmons because they all viewed him as weak? You know, you hear that a lot, you know, that Fitzsimmons is, a, is an idiot and he's a, a dopey guy and everything else. Dan Moldea has been investigating and writing about the Hoffa story for nearly 45 years. He says of Frank Fitzsimmons, uh, He wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he was a loyal guy, and he was smart enough to know. He was like Ronald Reagan, in a way. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan wasn't uh, that bright. Uh, he wasn't well-educated, but he was smart enough to know who to put around him. And that was Frank Fitzsimmons' special gift. The one thing that never changed with Hoffa throughout his life was his obsession with power. That's how he ran his union. 
everything went through him. He made it a centralized autocracy. The mob wants a loan? Jimmy has to approve it. But when Fitzsimmons took over in 1967, he took a more laid-back approach, and he gave a lot of his power back to the local Teamster leaders. Where they could cooperate with the local mob guys within their own jurisdictions. And so the mafia and the Teamsters vice presidents got really into the whole decentralization thing. As Fitzsimmons slowly became the mob's favorite Teamster president, Hoffa was biding his time in prison. Lewisburg was built in 1932 to accommodate 1,050 prisoners. When I arrived, it was jammed with 1,800 people, and on my first trip to the confined quarters of the exercise yard, it seemed as if all of them knew me. There were all kinds. Lifers, homosexuals, gunmen, forgers, burglars, safecrackers, you name it. One fellow inmate who definitely knew Hoffa was a guy named Tony Provenzano. He was doing four years for extortion. He was a member of the Genovese crime family, a capo, and Hoffa and Provenzano were at one time very close friends. They were allies. Historian Scott Bernstein. Hoffa helped Tony Provenzano rise through the ranks of the Teamsters on the East Coast. By the uh, mid to late 1960s, he controlled the entire East Coast delegate voting bloc. At some point, a feud develops between Provenzano and Hoffa in prison over Teamsters insurance benefits that Hoffa's family was still receiving with him locked up, that Provenzano's family was not receiving when he was incarcerated. And this led to a number of physical altercations, uh, threats being thrown back and forth, uh, uh, not just threats to murder each other, but threats to murder each other's families. Um, it got incredibly bitter, incredibly intense, very fast. One thing Jimmy Hoffa never lacked was confidence. Whether it was dealing with guys like Tony Provenzano, or the prison's parole board. He believed he could cut a deal to get out of prison early and take back the power of the union presidency that he had lost. But after four years, he was still there. And Frank Fitzsimmons had become a popular hands-off replacement. But Hoffa remained convinced he could get his job back. His son and daughter made an appeal for parole based on family hardship. Hoffa had diabetes, and his wife Josephine was hospitalized after a stroke. I expressed the family's viewpoints and our very serious concern for my mother. The doctor has said that she could die any moment, and she is in very, very serious condition. She is under constant care, and she loves my father very much, and when you separated them, this was a very, very big blow to her health problem. The United States Board of Parole announced today that Mr. James R. Hoffa's application for parole has been denied. Guys have been known to hang themselves in isolation, but if you have guts, you straighten your spine, stick out your chin, and tell yourself they can all go to hell because you tough it out. At one point, Hoffa's good record brought an offer from the warden to transfer to the prison farm. Hoffa's response? Don't bother, I'll be getting out of here soon. There were deals, bargains, and bribes in the works.
According to Teamster expert William Bastone, who cites FBI memos, Hoffa Jr. and Alan Dorfman, the guy who ran the Teamsters pension fund, delivered $300,000 in a black briefcase to a Washington hotel to secure Hoffa Sr.'s release from prison. The money headed to the Nixon campaign fund, the bribe. Now, Frank Fitzsimmons wanted Hoffa released from prison to satisfy the rank-and-file members. They still loved Hoffa. But Fitz wanted Hoffa kept away from the union. He pledged union support to Nixon if Nixon would help with Hoffa. The bargain. So President Nixon and his advisors came up with the deal. Yeah. Yeah, George. Good morning, Mr. President. I was wondering what... Uh, <clears throat> this is a conversation between Nixon and Secretary of Labor George Shultz, the spring of 1971. They're talking about how they want to isolate Jimmy Hoffa as a way to keep Frank Fitzsimmons in charge. It might be that we have to, uh, have to try to isolate him to an extent to make him look bad. I think so. Because if you don't do that, George, I'm, uh, that'd be, uh, I'm afraid that uh, you get the worst of both worlds. He'll get out and take the others with him. But if others feel he's a little unpopular, they may not. But I don't know. What do you think? That, that's, that's the way I read it. I think we need to isolate him. I have a golfing date today with Frank Fitzsimmons. Good. And I'll see what he has to say. I would hit him uh, hard in saying how crude and rude and so forth he was. I, I, right. I, well, that has come through. And I don't Releasing Hoffa from prison was politically a good idea. It would guarantee Nixon support from the Teamsters in his 1972 re-election campaign. But he knew Jimmy Hoffa could make trouble. So it was best to wait until after Fitzsimmons was elected president of the union in July of 1971. Charles Colson said his boss, Richard Nixon, made the call. He said that we're going to give Hoffer a parole, but on the condition that he never come back into the labor movement again, you can contact Fitzsimmons and tell him what we're doing. December 23rd, 1971. Hoffa walked free from federal prison after serving four years, nine months, and 16 days. He was going home, greeted by his wife, Josephine. I didn't think it was possible, though I never gave up hope. And my grateful thanks to President Nixon for making this possible. To have my husband home with me and the family. The deal locked Hoffa out of the union for 10 years, but he was not about to wait. So he began work on a lawsuit to lift his commutation restrictions. At the same time, he met with mob bosses all across the country. Uh, campaigning, politicking, trying to convince them that it's in their best interest to put him back in power. Their muscle had served him well for 30 years, but not this time. And he realizes that the mob doesn't want him back that they don't want him as the president again. And they're all telling him, Jimmy, you had a great run, and we love you, and we're going to do whatever we can for you in your retirement. Hoffa had no interest in retirement or money. The union gave him a $1.7 million pension payout with a message. It's time for other people to grab the baton, and it's time for you to take a seat on the bench without being the president of the Teamsters, without being the boss of organized labor in the world, he, 
he wasn't who he wanted to be. So he goes to plan B. Hoffa thinks if he can make peace with East Coast crime boss and teamster Tony Provenzano, that support could boost him back to the union presidency. Because Provenzano controls the entire uh, delegation on the East Coast. He controls the voting block that Hoffa needs to win back the presidency. A meeting was set on neutral turf. It, it, and it was a bit of a disaster where you had uh, both men meeting in a hotel suite in Miami and supposedly grabbing a hold of each other and trying to choke the life out of each other before they were separated. So that didn't work. New plan. Hoffa goes on a media tour. Uh, going on a number of national television broadcasts, doing interviews with newspapers, and it was a full-fledged campaign to sway the public and to sway the media that he needs to come back into the Teamsters presidency, and that his new mandate is to clean up the Teamsters, that he's going to go in there and he's going to get rid of all the bad influence, organized crime influence that he had brought in, in, the, first in the first place. And you think that amongst the rank and file, you're still number one? I would say there's no problem. The expression that I get from around the country is no problem. You know, I think if you go out and check the average local union or the membership, you'll find it's true. So will you make the prediction that Jimmy Hoffa will be president of the Teamsters Union again in 1976? If I can get rid of my restriction, which I expect to do, and my lawyers tell me is 85% uh, possible, yes. Yes. I expect that. He was playing a card and speaking to the mob through the media. And this didn't sit very well with them. They don't like being threatened. Here's former assistant U.S. attorney Keith Corbett. You know, after Nixon pardoned him uh, and he found out he couldn't get back into the union, he was going to take every effort he could to do that. And in order to do that, he had threatened to reveal the mob's involvement with the Teamsters. Uh, you know, the fact that, say, the Central State Southeast Southwest Area Pension Fund, which funded about two-thirds of the casinos in Vegas, was nothing but a candy store for the mob. And I think that a number of people from Frank Fitzsimmons and high-ranking Teamster officials to organized crime figures who controlled locals and significant portions of the Teamsters Union were very apprehensive about what Hoffa might do. At this point, I believe Hoffa went to the FBI, went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and made a, made a deal, a quid pro quo under the table. You help get the restriction from my commutation lifted so I can run in 1976 and I will give you information on organized crime and when I get into office I will purge the organized crime influence from the Teamsters. Whether Hoffa actually went to the FBI or it was merely a rumor, it didn't matter. He had information to sell and believed that gave him leverage to negotiate. But the threat to his former mafia collaborators cost him his life. With Hoffa moving to get his old job back, a violent split developed in the Teamsters Union between Fitzsimmons supporters and those loyal to Hoffa. Frank Fitzsimmons was handpicked by Hoffa to take over the Teamsters Union. Hoffa had been told he would get out of prison if he resigned as Teamster president. 
The implication was that Fitzsimmons, Fitz to his friends, would step out when Hoffa wanted him to. But now Fitzsimmons shows no inclination to do so. He is enjoying his new role as something of a statesman and as President Nixon's main supporter in the labor movement. At a certain point in 74, there was a anti-Hoffa goon squad that was put into place where you had another former Hoffa ally in Roland McMaster who had been his number one Teamsters muscle, a guy that was kind of like his Luca Brazzi, if you want to make a godfather analogy. But by 1974, McMaster was no longer in Hoffa's corner. He had aligned with Frank Fitzsimmons. And McMaster's was picked to captain this anti-Hoffa goon squad, which was tasked with preventing Hoffa's re-election by any means necessary. And there was a campaign of violence that was launched against Hoffa, uh, where intimidation tactics and thuggery were used to dissuade him from running. And there was a string of incidents starting in the, in the months and year before Hoffa disappeared, where himself, his family, and his loyalists were targeted. Whether it was George Roxborough getting shot in the face with a shotgun, knocked his eye out, whether it was uh, Otto Wendell, uh, his, his barn was bombed, whether it was Dave Johnson's cabin cruiser. Had his boat uh, uh, on Gross Eel blown to pieces. You then had what I consider a real linchpin in this whole saga of how Hoffa's murder got greenlit. July 10th, 1975, 20 days before Hoffa disappeared. Frank Fitzsimmons' son, Richard, was at Nemo's, the popular Teamsters bar in Detroit. At the time, Little Fitz, as he was known, was running for the presidency of Teamsters Local 299, running against a Hoffa loyalist, Dave Johnson. Out in the parking lot of Nemo's on that July 10th night, a bomb was placed in Fitzsimmons' car and it was blown up. That was to make it look like the violence was now going both ways. In The Irishman, it looks like it's Hoffa's people who were behind the bombing in Dick Fitzsimmons' car. That's as much nonsense as everything else in that film. Dan Moldea is convinced all of the violence, including the bombing of Richard Fitzsimmons' car, came from Roland McMaster's goon squad. The idea is that McMaster's people bombed the car to make it look like Hoffa had finally gone over the edge, that he couldn't be trusted to keep quiet or give up his crusade to take back his old job. Or there's the possibility, a very good possibility, that Hoffa was, in fact, trying to kill the Fitzsimmonses. I mean, I don't put that past Jimmy Hoffa that he was actually planting car bombs to try to blow up his enemies in, in big fits and little fits. I think that that event set everything in motion. And I think over the next two, three weeks, details were starting to get coordinated. People were starting to sign off on it. And this Super Bowl of murder conspiracies that still hasn't stopped 45 years later um, kind of uh, got off the ground and running with the bombing of the Fitzsimmons car in, in Nemo's parking lot. All right, so now let's, let's move then 20 days forward. 
to July 30th. Coming up on our next episode, the day Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. You know, they don't come at you guns blazing. They, they come at you like they're your best friend and they want to help you out. They rock you to sleep. They, they, they sing you a lullaby. And then right when you're about to close your eyes and you know, go off to dreamland, they stick a shiv in your back or, or put two in the back of your head with a, with a five millimeter or a nine millimeter. I, William E. Buffalino, hereby offer a $10,000 personal reward to any person who can find the body of James R. Hoffa. His remains will be in at the bottom of that drum. And I've told all my sources, I've said no one gets any money until this is proven to be that there's a body there and that the testing the, the, by, a, by federal law enforcement authorities says that this is the one and only Jimmy Hoffa. If you'd like to help support our show, become a member of Shattered Plus. For just $3.99 a month or $25 a year, you get exclusive access to bonus episodes of our Hoffa season. You'll also get our regular episodes without ads. On this week's bonus episode, an interview with Jack Goldsmith. Goldsmith is the stepson of Chucky O'Brien, who was one of Hoffa's closest confidants. But that relationship soured, and Chucky was among the FBI's original suspects in Hoffa's disappearance. Goldsmith says, yeah, his stepfather lied about a lot of things, but that Chucky was misunderstood. I'll let him explain in this week's bonus episode of Shattered. He, he opened up in spurts, but he was, he was very committed to the rule that you're not supposed to talk about things you're not supposed to talk about. Omerta. Omerta. And over the seven years of our interviews, it was a constant struggle for him to, on the one hand, do his very best to be truthful with me and tell me as much as he could, and on the other hand, not to speak about things he wasn't supposed to speak about, and that was part of the dance we had for seven years. It's part of the dance that informs the way I tell the story in the book, and it's a principle that he's holding on to to the end of his life. To sign up for Shattered Plus, go to shatteredpodcast.com. And thanks. Shattered is produced and edited by Zach Rosen and Jeremy Allen.